Irish Perspective. Hello and welcome to this edition of Paris Perspective with me, David Coffey. Well, it would appear that every move that Russian President Vladimir Putin makes leaves Western powers all the more perplexed as to what his intentions are when it comes to Ukraine. Many of Russia's traditional rivals are fearful that he could be preparing for a very real war, and the rhetoric from both sides has gone far beyond just normal sabre-rattling. After a flurry of high-level diplomatic talks throughout January, from Geneva to Brussels, from Vienna to here in Paris, the meetings achieved nothing and Russia continues its military build-up on Ukraine's border. Now, to discuss the standoff between the Kremlin and its former Cold War adversaries, I'm joined today by Marie Dumoulin from the European Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Marie, thank you very much for joining me on the programme today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome too. Now, let's have a look at recent events. Um, On Tuesday of uh, last week, Russia called on Western governments to respect a 1999 agreement that was signed in Istanbul that says that, inverted commas, in quotes, no country can strengthen its own security at the expense of others. And that, it argues, is at the heart of the Ukraine crisis. Now, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has written recently now to individual states who were signatories to that agreement, which I believe uh, came under the auspices of the Organization for Security and Cooperation here in Europe. So it also includes neutral states uh, who signed up to this. So Russia is reaching out to individual countries, to individual letters, with individual letters, because obviously Russia feels it would have more clout if it can do things bilaterally and therefore undercut uh, the European Union as a bloc. So is that really what its strategy is, to appeal to individual countries and split Europe apart? Well, you can have two different visions of of this um, Russian attempt. Um, Yes, it's probably a way to feed the divisions among uh, Western countries and not only the European Union, but uh, but the whole um, Western allies. Uh, but you can also have a very legalistic uh, vision of this um, demarche. Um, these countries signed these commitments as OSCE participating states, and the OSCE is not the kind of coherent organization that the EU or NATO are. So it's really as uh, individual states that they sign these commitments. And that's why he addresses them um, individually. Now, in itself, you know, the charter that that they signed up to uh, back uh, in the late 90s, it underlines that countries, you know, should be free to choose their own security arrangements and choose their own alliances. And it goes on to say that, you know, they will not strengthen security at the expense of uh, other states. But does that not in itself undermine or undercut Russian complaints of self-determination when looking for, like, let's just say, international recognition of the regions in eastern Ukraine, such as uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. And of course, we could look at the recognition of South Ossetia, that is north of Georgia, that actually was invaded back in 2014. Does this not seem ironic, if not uh, sarcastic almost, on the part of the Russians? It's quite a paradox, definitely, because uh, Russia is saying you're not um, respecting this commitment that security should not be guaranteed at the expense of the security of another state. But at the same time, uh, it pressures um, 
Ukraine and the West with threatening Ukraine security. So it's doing what it reproaches the West to do. Um, and another paradox is that Russia is appealing to this 1990 uh, OSCE declaration, but at the same OSCE meeting, Russia made commitments to withdraw its uh, troops from a number of territories where they are stationed, including Transnistria, including at that time Georgia. Um, Ukraine was not uh, concerned at the time, but it, it could now be considered as um, another example of Russian presence without acceptance um, of a neighbouring country. OK, we're not going to go into all of these various acts and agreements that were signed necessarily in the 90s, but there was a previous agreement signed in 1997 called the Founding Act on Mutual Relations, Cooperation and Security, which basically said, well, we're no longer enemies anymore. Now, that was uh, done under the mandate of Boris Yeltsin. Am I right in just saying that Putin is trying to set the record straight and making sure that Russia is again a world power? Yes, that's precisely what it what Russia is attempting to do. Um, another paradox is that it's appealing to this 1997 um, agreement with NATO mm. um, and saying this was um, a sort of golden time for NATO-Russia relations and we want to go back to that time um, and we want NATO to undo everything that has been done um, since 1997. So looking back to that 1997 agreement where it was put to that NATO and Russia were friends now and there'd be no expansion, um, have both sides, could we say, have both sides stuck to that deal? I mean, NATO has expanded exponentially into what was Russia's uh, sphere of influence all throughout the 1990s and especially throughout the 2000s since the... Uh, since the millennium, taking in the Baltic states, taking in Bulgaria, even more recently taking in uh, Montenegro uh, and Albania. So does Russia have a point? Well, there is a controversy with regards to what NATO actually promised and what uh, NATO did not promise. Russia says there was a clear promise back in 1990 that NATO would not expand. Um, and there is this 1997 act, and we want to go back to this period. Um, but at the same time, NATO countries say there never was a clear commitment not to expand, mm -hmm. and expansion has been also a consequence of Russia's behavior um, and of neighboring countries' need to have sort of security guarantees. Mm -hmm. And if Georgia and Ukraine want to join NATO, it's precisely because they feel threatened by Russia. OK, we know the figures. We've been hearing them over the last uh, weeks, um, confirmed, unconfirmed. Let's just say uh, it would appear even from media reports and indeed um, intelligence reports that there is a huge buildup of anything between 100 to 130,000 troops along Ukraine's border. Uh, but this has now shifted where uh, there are now um, there is a deployment of Russian troops into Belarus to Ukraine's northern border, which is essentially shifting where all of the military buildup in, <laughs> in anticipation of a Russian invasion uh, is now to the east of Ukraine, and it leaves the north of Ukraine completely exposed. On many things, there are only small amounts of troops in the grand scheme of things, but is this not also... A, psychological warfare that's being played by Vladimir Putin that's exposing Ukraine to a potential attack that is only a certain, well, 200 plus kilometers from the capital, Kiev. 
Yes, it's definitely a way to build up pressure. Um, Russia has also announced uh, military drills on the southern, on the south of Ukraine in Crimea. Mm. Well, Crimea is actually Ukraine, but it's the south, a southern front plus the northern front with Belarus, and it it makes a much longer front line if if Ukraine has to defend both in the east, in the north, in the south, um, and without knowing where a potential offensive will come from. So it's it's pressure whether uh, Russia has an intention to launch an offensive on Ukraine and where this offens- offensive would start is not clear uh, so far. Now, let's look at the other side of uh, this standoff. Here in Europe, I mean, France currently holds the rotating presidency of the European Union. And France, um, well, Emmanuel Macron, French President Macron, uh, held talks there recently with Vladimir Putin. And I'm sure it was cordial enough. And they said, look, we have to keep dialogue open. We have to bring the rhetoric down. And there is talk that Macron will soon uh, pay a visit or will soon meet up with Vladimir Putin. Again, can France really play a mediation role in this affair when it is so close to well, it's president of the European Union as it stands for now for the next couple of months, the next few months, but also between Washington, Brussels and the Kremlin. The the Russians have said at the beginning that they intend to talk to the US um, and they are not interested in talking to EU or uh, to start launch new talks in the framework of the Normandy format where mm-hmm. Uh, France and Germany play a mediation role. Now it seems that they have changed a bit this approach and accept they have accepted a first meeting of the Normandy format in Paris last week. Um, a, a second meeting was announced to take place in Berlin um, in a few days. And definitely Putin has talked to a number of European leaders, among them uh, Emmanuel Macron, with whom he's had regular contacts for the last five years. And after Chancellor Merkel left, uh, Macron is probably one of the European leaders that has the closest relationship to, to Putin. So he's trying to make use of this relationship, whether it brings added value and allows for de-escalation or at least to bring another track in the negotiations and bring back the Normandy format on track, it remains to be seen. They did say after that meeting of the Normandy format uh, in Paris there, um, uh, whatever, a week or so ago, that, uh, you know, some progress was made, but nothing was concrete. But, you know, speaking with European players here, Viktor Orban, Hungary's, um, well, populist leader, if you will, was in Moscow for talks with Vladimir Putin. Now, Whatever about his politics, he's definitely Macron's political opposite. He is, however, part of the European Union. He also, or Hungary, is also a part of NATO. So would the leader of a place such as Hungary, which was definitely part of the uh, old Soviet sphere of influence, uh, would a country like Hungary or Orban have actually a role to play here? on behalf of the EU, despite their differences and despite the rift between um, Hungary and uh, Brussels? 
Well, I very much hope that this is Orban's intention when traveling to Moscow and that he was willing to convey the same messages as other European and NATO leaders. This is not, though, what has transpired in the Russian communication about this visit. Uh, and there is a risk that um, Russia uses this visit to just display more divisions than sure. there are in, in the European Union and NATO. And we have one of the other key NATO states, I think, which uh, holds NATO's largest standing army, is Turkey. Recep Tayyip Erdogan is in Moscow. He's meeting with Putin. But Erdogan himself also maintains good relations with Kiev, or at least attempts to. We have to remember that back in the day when Crimea was annexed, back in 2014, Turkish ships were scrambled for the protection, be it for posturing or not, of the indigenous Tatars who uh, are in Crimea. But ever since then, that seems to be water under the bridge when it comes to these two strongmen, Putin and Erdogan. So what do you think that somebody like Erdogan can bring to the table, seeing that he's no friend of Brussels whatsoever? Well, Erdogan has a real interest in avoiding a confrontation between Russia and Ukraine and Russia and NATO. Turkey has developed a very strong relationship with Ukraine over the last years. There is a strong military cooperation between the two countries. Now, Turkey also needs Russia in, in a number of other issues, be it energy, be it uh, trade, um, or be it uh, regional crises in Syria, in Libya, and in other areas. So I think Turkey definitely does not want to be taken um, in, a, in a confrontation between these two sides because pressure would be from both sides to take stands, uh, which it doesn't want to do. Let's also then take a look at the more militaristic side of things with NATO and uh, its response um, to this build-up. The NATO response force, you know, it comprises, or it's comprised of, should I say, around 40,000 multinational troops, and it can be deployed at short notice. Um, I mean... There is this Article 5 that is within NATO, which is, you know, you, you hurt our friends, we will mobilise to uh, protect our friend. Now, Ukraine is not part of the NATO alliance, despite whether it will join or not. However, NATO and NATO countries have been deploying military aid, have been deploying uh, military experts on the ground. Article 5 itself maybe not be invoked for Ukraine itself, but could that be also seen as a provocation to Vladimir Putin, who, of course, is using the excuse that he is just doing military exercises. He's going to Belarus, which is his right to... Uh, uh, it was a deal that was struck with Lukashenko years ago that they would do these military exercises. Now, the old Cold War tactic was, OK, we will hold our resolve, but then they will be provoked into an attack. Do you think that... NATO's repost, even though it is small, could actually uh, uh, cause or become the final uh, straw that breaks the camel's back to allow Moscow actually put on the green light and blow the whistle to go in. Well, in the current situation, uh, Russia is also playing on one of NATO's weaknesses in its relationship to, to Ukraine. It is threatening Ukraine because it's not a member of NATO and because it's, well, Putin thinks NATO will not intervene directly to support Ukraine because Article 5 is not a guarantee for a non-member. Mm. Um, but there are a number of members of NATO uh, which support 
Ukraine very much, which have been providing military support, uh, military advice, etc. So um, at some point, this was all. This will also trigger divisions inside NATO, whether um, NATO should do more to support Ukraine or whether Article 5 and military guarantees are only for members. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something Putin knows very well. There were other uh, remarks coming, I think, specifically from Washington, but uh, definitely reports uh, that have been leaked out of the White House that they believe that Russian involvement or Russian deployment in Belarus could reach up to 30,000 troops by at any time in the coming weeks here. The February is used as the date. Now, that kind of shifts, it turns the tables very much on uh, uh, Putin throwing or snubbing his nose to Europe, saying, well, how do you like it when there is a build-up of troops on European borders, which would mean that you would have Russian troops that would be on borders with Poland, with uh, Latvia, Lithuania. Um, Is Putin trying to call, well, Europe's bluff or the West's bluff in general? It's definitely a form of bluff. Um, And it's uh, it's a threatening posture towards... um, Eastern members of NATO who are traditionally uh, more afraid of Russia, but also on tougher position vis-a-vis Russia um, Mm -hmm. than maybe um, Western uh, members. Um, But it it should also be seen uh, in the framework of the pressure exerted on Ukraine, because as we said earlier, it's opening a new front in a possible war against Ukraine. To Ukraine itself, there have been kind of mixed messages coming out from uh, President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, where on one side, when he was hosting um, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and uh, the uh, Polish uh, Premier um, who was there of late, he said, this is a direct quote, this is not going to be a war of Ukraine and Russia. This is going to be a European war, a fully fledged war. Now, there were pretty tough words and uh, anybody just walking into the room there would believe that something was imminent. Then on the other side, you've got Ukraine downplaying the tensions, you know, appealing for solidarity. They said that they were very annoyed with the uh, the US calling for diplomats and their families to leave uh, the country. So it would seem that Ukraine is really fighting with both sides. Is that really Ukraine just trying to hedge its bets in case Russia does come in or whether NATO does come in? I think Ukraine is in a difficult position already now because the Russian threats um, exert a huge pressure also on the economy of Ukraine. Mm. It has already now um, huge consequences for Ukraine's economy. It could frighten potential investors. It has an impact on um, exchange rates. So um, playing down the threats is also a way to say um, we are not there yet, Um, we are prepared, Um, now keep calm and uh, continue coming to Ukraine, continue investing in Ukraine. And it's also a way to um, calm down the, the, the Ukrainian public. He doesn't want to create a panic in Ukraine. And he also doesn't want to create the impression that he is panicking. In mm. case there is a war, he needs to appear as a strong leader. Um, 
if he starts now raising panic, he will not have this image anyway. Basically, you say that Zelensky is making sure that there is no further division within the Ukrainian population by playing these two cards. Yeah, that's precisely what he's trying to do. Um, And it's all the more difficult as there are a number of divisions in Ukrainian society. Um, He faces huge domestic challenges presently. So, So he has a difficult role to play now. Indeed, and we hope that uh, diplomacy does prevail in the coming weeks. Uh, um, Marie Dumoulin from the European Council on Foreign Relations, thank you very much for being on Paris Perspective today. Thank you for the invitation. And thank you very much uh, for joining us on this edition of Paris Perspective. Uh, As always, you can get us on rfienglish.com forward slash podcast and indeed wherever you get your podcasts. And we will be back uh, here on Paris Perspective with me, David Coffey, in two weeks' time.